So here's the words we're going to start off this uh, sermon with. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I'm sure you know what those are the opening words of. They're the opening words of the Declaration of Independence, um, our country declaring independence from Great Britain. And the words we hear in it are there's self-evident truths. Everyone is equal, unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these are words that define what it means to be an American. These are the words we live and breathe, whether we choose to or not. And you might even say, like, eh, you know, I'm not so, you know, the Bible is my word. But it's like, these are the words that shape the culture and society in which we live here. And they shape every fabric of it. And we're born into them. It's the water we swim in uh, as human beings living in America at this time. And it's the air we breathe. These truths are natural to our way of life and are assumed. If somebody would disagree with them or if we would see people you know, in a different country or elsewhere or another time living out of accord with them, we would say, this, is, this isn't right because this is what has formed what we think it means to be human and what it should uh, to show a person dignity. And this is the message of our culture. But another message of our culture that's very much tied to these words is what um, some have called uh, expressive individualism. Has anybody heard that before? Expressive individualism? No, it's just one of those things that I know about. Um, but expressive individualism is about being able to express outwardly what I feel internally. Uh, it's what it means to be the real or genuine me. So it's me as an individual, what do I feel internally? I should be able to express that externally in my life. Uh, expressive individualism assumes the authority of inner feelings in what it means to be an individual. The inner feelings of the self tell you who you are. This is your identity. This is what you're made of. And so expressive individualism says, be true to yourself because self-fulfillment and expression are the highest goals of life. And it's the idea that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly what I'm feeling inside of me. The most authentic, real individual is the person who expresses outwardly that which they are inwardly. And so some people may feel like, well, society has certain ways it has forced me to behave uh, or certain roles that it's asked me to take on that uh, I, don't conform to my inner feelings and convictions, that, that society has forced on us to play a certain role that we didn't feel comfortable with inside. And so people might say at one point, like, I felt like I was living a lie, like I wasn't being myself. And then finally I, I broke out of whatever it was that was holding me back uh, and, I mean, just think of many Disney movies. They're about an individual breaking out of family or cultural norms and expectations uh, that keep them from expressing what is inside of them. And some of the movies do a better job than others of holding both, this is what my family values and what my people values, and here's who I am. Um, but a lot of them are just more like, anybody who's holding you back, that's kind of the enemy, and you've got to break out of that. And perhaps the most extreme example right now of expressive individualism is transgenderism, someone with a body of a man who inwardly feels that they're a woman has the right and the need to express what they feel internally uh, in the way they dress, the way they behave, and even the restrooms that they use. And to deny this need and right is oppressive or hateful. Inside, I feel like a woman, even though I look like a man. I should be able to express that on the outside. And all of this is very American. We're the land of the free, right? Free to be or uh, who or whatever that we want. It's that, so expressive individual individualism is just baked right into our Declaration of Independence. 
And we're in this series just called Different uh, in First Peter. And Peter's really writing to a group of people that are struggling to be different in the society, in the town, in the culture that they're in. That the ways that they think about God, about humanity, about sexuality, about uh, who has ultimate authority over their life is very different from the people around them. And Peter's writing to them as they experience pressure and hostility and harassment because of that difference, saying, remember, this is who you are, this is why you're different, and this is how you ought to respond to these people who don't like uh, how different you are. And as I've said in these messages, that uh, there's a pastor named Tony Evans who says, we've lost home field advantage. Christianity has lost home field advantage in America, that we are now the visiting away team. And if you think about what it's like to be the visiting away team, like... Uh, you know, the Packers coming down here to play uh, Soldier Field, that's, you know, people are going to be hateful towards them, not going to like them. Are you going to wear your Packer jersey or not? Because you might get tomatoed or, I don't know, uh, Chicago hot dog or something like, you've got to take that back to your cheese state. Uh, but, you know, there's being the visiting away team means the crowd's against you, they're cheering against you, the city's against you. And almost everything about biblical Christianity is offensive to our culture, what we believe about God we believe about people, what we believe about salvation, ethics and morality, and where identity comes from. And so this letter is Peter's how-to manual. How do you remain different? And how do you react differently in a culture that doesn't like the, the person you follow? And our passage for today is all about which message is going to direct our lives. Is it the message of our culture, the message of expressive individualism, or the message of the gospel? And so Peter's message so far has been this. By God's grace, he says you've been, he's caused you to be born again into a living hope, into an inheritance, into our salvation. And he says, praise God for that. You have this great future to look forward to. And then he comes and steps back to the presence and said, but right now you're experiencing various trials. And those trials are, aren't just, you know, kind of like uh, having bodily sicknesses, but his trials he's referring to is people don't like you. They don't like who you are. They don't like what you believe. And so, but, in, but still, you're rejoicing in that future. Even though you have these trials, you're loving Jesus, you're believing in Jesus. And he says, the prophets and the angels wanted to see this day in which you live, the day of fulfillment. They talked about it, but you get to actually see it fulfilled. And then he gives commands, as we saw last week, commands for individuals to be God-centered. Set your hope fully on the inheritance God's going to give to you. Be holy as God is holy. Live for God's approval. And this passage follows right on that. And the previous passage had these three commands for individuals to have a God-centered life. And these, there's two commands in this passage that are really about how the community of God can have a God-centered life. And really it's answering how the people of God are created and changed by the gospel. The gospel is what creates and changes the people of God. So the first command is in uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And the basic command here is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In, in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And he says this word, this phrase, love one another. Uh, if you read through the New Testament, you'll discover that there are a lot of these one another commands. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Submit yourselves to one another. And there's actually, people have counted them up, there's 59 one another commands in Scripture, just showing when God brings a people together, we get knit together. We're not a whole bunch of individuals that come here to experience this and then go home. No, there's all these one another's that are tying us together that uh, in order to obey God, we need to obey those. And Jesus commanded his disciples, he said, love one another as I have loved you, John 13, 34. And then he actually says that people will know you're my disciples 
by your love for one another. As we love one another, as Christ has loved us, then people know, wow, that's, those people are Jesus' disciples. They we're known by our love. And it's, as a Christian uh, who isn't in community with other Christians, is really a category that the Bible doesn't have. Uh, he tells them, you're to love one another because you have been born again. Coming to Christ brings you into relationships with other believers. It's automatic. It just is what happens. It's not a choice. And so what should characterize uh, their love for one another and our love for one another? Well, he emphasizes or modifies it by saying, uh, uh, do it earnestly, which means not wavering in one's display of interest or devotion. You don't give up. You don't uh, drop the ball here. You keep going no matter what. You don't uh, just set loving other people aside for a while. You don't let the fire of love go cold. You keep it going. You fan it into flame. You need to do it earnestly. You need to work at this, pursue this, be intentional about it. And so that's the first thing he says. Love, loving one another should be earnest in our lives. It should be a constant that we don't stop doing. And then he says, do it from a pure heart, which is basically saying, be genuine. This isn't fake love. This is love that flows from the heart. This isn't putting on a loving, you know, image when we're with each other, but it's, and then when we're not with each other, not loving one another, but it's from the heart. It's genuine. And uh, then we may ask, okay, well, what, what they're supposed to do is love one another, but how, and how they're supposed to love one another is earnestly from a pure heart, but why should they love one another? And Peter gives two reasons. First, in, in verse 22, he says, uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love. And then he says, love one another. And so it's because of this, they ought to love one another. Because you purified your souls uh, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, therefore, love one another. And this is talking about their conversion, about the time when they heard the gospel, and they said, uh, it's the good news about the kingdom of God, of which Jesus is the ruler. And they said, yes, I'm going to surrender to him, I'm going to turn to him as my king, and I'm going to receive the salvation that comes with that. And this statement focuses on really the human action and conversion. It says, you purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That you heard the truth, you obeyed it, and that is what brought purification in your life. They're cleansed of their sin, they're forgiven, they're made white as snow. And Peter states the purpose that obedience to the truth uh, led them into. He says, you obeyed the truth for a sincere brotherly love. It's not, you obeyed the truth and you know, now great, you're forgiven. It says, but you obeyed the truth not just for forgiveness, but for now loving uh, other people. The, the, whenever you see that brotherly love word in the Bible, it's uh, typically the word Philadelphia. It's, you know, the city, wasn't that what Philadelphia is called? The city of brotherly love or something? This exact word, Philadelphia, love, love of your brother. And so he says, you obeyed the truth, which has cleansed you, you've been forgiven but just also entered you into these relationships with other people whom you're supposed to love. And so that's the reason, number one, they're supposed to love one another. But reason number two uh, is down in verse 23. So he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again. Not of, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So they ought to love one another. Here it says, because they've been born again by the word of God. And first he said, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, that's reason number one, you should love one another. That emphasizes the human action in responding to the truth. But then the God's divine action in it is you've been born again. 
born again emphasizes the divine action. This is something you didn't do. Just like you didn't make yourself be born into this world, God, you didn't make yourself be born into this family of God, into this spiritual life. You know, have God causes you to be born again. And the, he says, how did that happen? The word of God was the seed that God caused uh, them to be born with, to be born again. And so we might wonder, well, born again, that's weird. You know, it's kind of a weird, it's a language that Christians use, like, I'm a born again Christian, but what does that actually mean for us to be born again? Well, the United States' Declaration of Independence was not the first Declaration of Independence in history. Uh, the first one actually happened at the very beginning with the first human beings, Adam and Eve. God created these two. They're in this garden. There's one rule. You, you live life on God's terms. You don't live life on your own terms. You don't define good and bad for yourself. You let God define good and bad, and you trust him with that. But they decided, you know what? We want to define good and bad on our own terms. We want to live life on our own terms. And in doing that, they declared independence from God. Look, this is about us and what we want to do. It's not about you any, anymore. And this is the condition we are born into. This is like uh, the default operating system that humans are born with, that we have declared our independence from God, uh, and now we live life on our own terms. And we want to be free from anyone telling us what to do. Uh, I mean, I'm sure any of you with kids, it was Mother's Day, and so if you were a mom, you know kids really like to do what they want to do. They don't want to listen to what you want to do. And so you can see this. I don't, you know, I don't know what kids would have been like born into a sinless world, but we'd sure know what they're like now, which is we don't want to hear the word no. And they like saying the word no. And they like saying the word mine. This is mine. So we want to live life on our own terms, even from a very young age. And this is, we want to be free from anyone telling us what to do, including God. I'm on the throne. I'm Lord of my life. I am the God who determines what is good. And we declare our independence from any external influences, including God's influence. And so for someone to be born again means God reaches down into that person's life and he installs a new operating system. They're born again to now say, yes, I want to give my life to God. I want to surrender to Jesus. And he takes that default operating system of, no, I'm living life in my own terms. And God reaches down and causes a person to be born again. They have a new operating system. And so now it's, Yes, I want to live with God at the center of my life again. God makes us into a new and different kind of person. And there's just no other way to explain it besides they've been born again. It's like they're a new person, you know. You've been, it's like you, you came out one way, but now you've been born again. You're uh, different. And Peter calls the word of God here living and abiding and imperishable. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage in verse 24 for proof. He says, and this quotation comes from the prophet Isaiah uh, chapter 40. And this is a key chapter in the book. And for 39 chapters, Isaiah is telling the people of Israel, you are, you're, God's going to bring judgment upon you because you've turned away from God. You've turned away from him. And so uh, he's going to take your land. He's going to send a nation in and take you away. And he predicts your home will be invaded and you'll be carried off into exile by the nation of Babylon. But then, so that's 39 chapters. And then starting in chapter 40, it's like, okay, I've told you this bad news. What's going to happen? In chapter 40, it's like he steps forward in time to when the people are actually sitting in exile. He's telling them this is going to happen in the future. And then he goes to those people in the future, and chapter 40 starts with telling them, comfort, comfort, God comforting his people. You're sitting in exile, and I want to give you comfort. And he speaks the good news uh, that, that he gives to Israel is that God says, I will forgive you, I will restore you. And the nations of the world will not stand against my word and my promises of what he said, that, you know, those people, they're like grass. 
and the flowers which fade wither and fall. But unlike them, God says, my word will stand forever. And then Peter identifies God's word in Isaiah uh, in verse 25. He says, this is the word that was preached to you, the good news that was preached to you. In other words, Peter's saying, these people who are against you and who are against God right now won't last. What God has said will last. His good news will last. His word will last. What he says will come to pass. His promises are true and lasting. The, the good news that is announced to you is permanent. It's unfading. It's not going anywhere. It's not temporary. God's kingdom isn't going anywhere, but the kingdoms of this world will perish and fade. So even if they're standing against you now and standing against God, it's not going to last. Hold on to what God has said. Hold on to his promises. And so they're living in this time of fulfillment that the prophets only talked about but never experienced. Yes, they're in exile in this world, but it won't last forever. Forever, You can count on King Jesus, he's telling them. And he uses several words for uh, the gospel. He says, it's the truth, the seed, the word of God, the word of the Lord, good news. And they were born again by this. By hearing God's word, they are born again. And this, is, you know, this gives me extreme, tons of hope, because if you're thinking about people in your life, it's like, I would love them to come to know Jesus. I'd love them to turn their lives over to God. And the only way they can do that Peter's telling us here is it's by them hearing about Jesus that they, God will, can cause them to be born again, which is really a miracle. Hey, each of us in this room who says, yes, Jesus is my Lord, yes, I've surrendered to him. You're a walking miracle. You've been born again. The default operating system has been taken out. And at some point you heard God's word, you heard the gospel, and you said yes. And the only reason you could say yes to it was because God reached out into your heart and he changed you. He caused you to be born again. And as we go out and invite other people, to surrender to Jesus, we too can say, God, just show a miracle here. It's not about my words, me able to convince somebody. It's just about people hear it, and then God does something in their life. And so the power is in his word. And so he made them a new and different people uh, who now love one another. Um, But secondly, the second command, the first command is love one another. The second command is long for the word. Long for the word. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Long for the word. And so he says, uh, you've been born again by the good news. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, he says, so uh, put away. And then he gives this list of things that destroy love. Love one another. And then it's so, you know, since you've been born again by this word to love one another, now put away some of these things that are going to contradict love. They're going to destroy love. And he says, put away all malice, which is another word you could say uh, that use for that is ill will. It's really you're against someone instead of for them. You're hoping bad things happen to somebody. He says, put away all deceit and hypocrisy, which basically is you're not being your, your true self. You're putting on a mask or an act. You're making it look like you love someone, but you really don't. This goes back to the genuine. It's supposed to be a sincere love. Deceit is like uh, maybe you're telling, being nice to someone's face, but then when they're gone, you're not nice to them uh, when other, with other people. He says, put away envy which is not desiring the best for someone, but desiring their downfall and your advancement. Slander is disparaging and belittling someone. It's not honoring them, but using your words to reduce their worth and their value uh, as a person, and especially doing it in other people's eyes. It's like, I don't like this person, and so I'm going to talk about, these, about them to these people in a way that will lower them in these people's eyes. And one way you can describe all this is really we're in kind of an enemy mode. I talked about this in a series we did in the fall, that when you're in enemy mode with someone, you are making 
the problems or the pain that they have brought into your life bigger than the relationship. That's what enemy mode is, is that you're focused on the pain or the problems that they bring into your life rather than on the person and the relationship. And it's really easy to slip into this. You might think like, well, enemy mode, that sounds pretty intense. Like, I never do that. I mean, I slip in and out of it all day. Um, And you you should just start watching. uh, Sometimes, you know, Hudson's doing something that's like, this is really frustrating. And I can get get focused on, this is the problem you're bringing into my life. This is your problem, your behavior, what you're doing, and you not letting me go and relax, whatever it is, and instead of focusing on, oh, this is my son, whom I love. This is the person in front of me is my son, and he's not my enemy. And so I, he's not against me. I shouldn't be against him. How do I uh, love him in this situation? And so just look for that when you're feeling frustrated with someone or you're being impatient or harsh with them. Think, am I focused on the pain or the problem this person's bringing rather than the person and seeing them in front of you? And that gets you out of enemy mode into relational mode. Another way you can think of it is you're seeing people either as vehicles or obstacles to fulfill your own desires. And when someone's in the way of what I want, I can be mad at them, can be frustrated. Or it's like, I like this person because they're a vehicle to get what I want, or you're mad at them because they're an obstacle to getting what you want. So just watch for that in your life. It, that will destroy love. It's the opposite of love. Well, he says, you know, long for. You're supposed to long for something. Uh, he says in, in verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. And really, we're supposed to long for what cultivates love. That's what this passage is about. You know, he says, so put these things away. Instead of doing that, long for this. Uh, and we, you know, right now, with Ezra being 10 weeks old, we have a lot of craving for milk in our house right now. And so I was kind of watching him this week and being like, um, what, what does he do when he's longing for milk, when he's craving milk? Well, I mean, he doesn't do too much right now besides cry and get super cranky. And uh, you might think of it as like, well, maybe when we're not taking in spiritual milk, well, what happens to us? It, it's probably these things that are in verse 1. You could describe that as someone who's cranky because uh, they haven't gotten their milk. You know, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. When we're not getting the word of God, he's going to, you know, later on we'll see that the pure spiritual milk, what is that? It's really the word of God. It's the gospel. And when we're not getting that in our life, we become what verse 1 describes, you know, like a baby that's not getting milk. We become verse 1. We start fighting against people, um, doing things to take them down and not wishing to love people. We become very unloving. And so this pure spiritual milk, it's, it's the Word, the Word of God. It began their relationship with God, and it's what now sustains them in the relationship with God, that they're born again by the Word of God, and now if they want to grow as one of God's children and family, members that now they need the word to continue. And he says, uh, long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. You may grow up into salvation. And we've talked before about how there's three different tenses, you know, verb tenses to our salvation. You have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. You are being saved in the present from the power of sin. You will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. And here he's talking about the future, growing up into that future salvation that he's talked about is going to be brought to them when Jesus makes all things new uh, and his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. And so being a Christian you know, is, or a follower of Jesus is not saying, well, I made this decision you know, way back when and then I you know, walked an aisle or filled out a card or got baptized or something, but it's 
about walking and growing with Jesus all the way to the end. It's not, I was saved back then. It's, I'm growing up into this salvation that God has promised for me. And what we'll do is grow in love for one another. And we'll grow out of the attitudes and behaviors that we saw in verse 1. And you might think of growing up into salvation kind of like um, an on-ramp. And so when you're getting, uh, you know, trying to get on a freeway or highway or whatever, you have this on-ramp. And the goal of the on-ramp is to have this nice, easy transition onto the highway where you get up to speed and then you just merge into traffic without being like, I'm going 20 and everyone has to go around you. Uh, and you can think about our spiritual growth and the spiritual life. It's, it's like this on-ramp to this future salvation that is going to happen when we see God face-to-face. And instead of it being like, you know, I was just a total unloving person. And all of a sudden I got to heaven and it was like culture shock because now everyone's I'm supposed to be loving. Everyone's supposed to be, everyone's loving me. But it's like, as we grow up into salvation, as we become more loving, it's like this on-ramp transitioning us. Okay, and now heaven isn't so much of a culture shock because it's, we were all along, we were longing for God's righteousness. We were wanting to love other people. We were trying to live out what he wants on earth as it is in heaven. And so he says, you should long for the word so you will grow up into salvation. Then he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And this is Psalm 34 that we read at the beginning, uh, where this, David writing the psalm says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And in this, kind of similar to Isaiah, uh, where Isaiah, the, what he quotes there about the flowers and the grass fading, but the word of the Lord, it was this moment when the people were outside of the promised land. They were in exile. And here, this psalm, too, is a situation where David is in exile. He's outside of the promised land. He's running from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And so he's been forced out into exile, out of the promised land. And our whole situation, from now until either we die or Jesus returns, is us longing for the promised land. We're on our journey there. Peter says we're strangers and sojourners, exiles in this world, because we're in it, but we're not of this world. We're citizens of a different place. And so from now till then, we're going to the promised land. We're outside of it, but it's been promised to us. And David, he writes this. He's afflicted and suffering, but he trusts in God as his refuge through it. Those who put their trust and hope in God will in the end be saved and redeemed, but those who oppose God will be destroyed. That's what David says in this psalm. will be condemned. And so he says, you know, I'm on the run. I'm outside of the promised land. This isn't how it's supposed to be, but oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I can trust him in this. Even though my circumstances look bad, Seems like all of his promises have failed me. I can trust that he's good and will come through. And really longing for God's word is longing for God himself. We know him through his word. And there's all kinds of language about longing for God in the Old Testament. Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what creates this longing for God in someone? I mean, I'm sure you think about your life and it's like, you might think, I know a lot of people who aren't really longing for God. In reality, we everyone is. We have these desires and these longings inside of us. And since we turn from God, we're looking to satisfy those apart from God, but really everyone is longing for God, whether they can put their finger on it or not. Uh, But this longing that we realize and see God as the fulfillment of those desires and longings is when 
we're born again, as Peter's been talking about. God reaches into our lives, reaches into our hearts. He puts a new operating system in where it's like, now I'm not seeking everything but God to get these longings fulfilled, but now I see clearly God is the one who's the fulfillment of these longings, the only one that can satisfy them. And God plants in us a new operating system where he's at the center and he makes us into a person who has a taste for God. You know, you might say certain things like, yeah, it's acquired taste. Uh, we've kind of lost our taste for God even though we're longing for him and God puts that taste in us, a taste for his authority, his glory, his guidance, his lordship in our lives. First uh, Corinthians, I believe chapter 12 says, no one says Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit bringing them to say it. So we will always say, I want to do life on my own terms, not on your terms, God, until God gives us a taste. No, his authority, his lordship is good, and I want it. And so their desire, these people's desire that Peter's writing to, to grow up into salvation, is there because they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've tasted his beauty, his kindness, his grace and mercy. And if you've tasted that, Peter assumes we will want to grow spiritually. It's not, you know, a, kind of an optional thing. Like, you know, some people just get in and they get forgiven and they don't really walk the, you know, what's it, walk, walk the talk, whatever. You know, don't walk the walk. I don't know how it goes. So it's not like there's forgiven people and then there's obedient people. You know, you know, forgiven people and people who are forgiven and obedient. He says, no, if you've been born again into this, you've tasted that the Lord is good and you're going to want more of him. You want to want to keep getting more of him in your life. And so ask yourself, what do you long for and crave the most on a daily basis or weekly basis or the year? What do you long for and crave the most? And tasting that the Lord is good creates a longing. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you'll want more. And if you're finding yourself saying, I don't really want more, you may want to ask, have I even tasted that the Lord is good yet? It's like trying a sample of ice cream at an ice cream shop and then saying, like, yep, that's the one I want. You know, give me three scoops of that or you know, whatever it is. It's kind of like I sampled something and now, yeah, that's what I want. And believing Jesus and obeying the gospel is not just about saying, sweet, I'm forgiven and now, you know, I got my ticket to heaven. That's not at all how the Bible talks about it. There's a life change that takes place. And if someone is claiming that they, you know, think about you know, yourself or in your own life, if you know someone who's claiming they know God, but you see a lot of, uh, verse 1 in it, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. There's good reason to ask this person, have you tasted and seen the Lord is good? Do you want more of him in your life? Do you want more of what he's about in your life? Because if they have tasted it, they'll be growing out of those things in verse 1. And so the summary here, basically the two commands are love one another, long for the word. Love one another, long for the word. It's, and you love one another since you've been born again by the word, and you long for more of the word so that you will grow in love. So it's loving one another and longing for the word. It's by God's word that we're born again into his family. And it's by God's word that we grow up as the family of God to be the kind of people that he wants us to be. And I want to, as we just think about you know, practical things for our life, uh, he says in verse 2, like newborn infants, Long for this pure spiritual milk. And that word pure implies that there is impure spiritual milk to drink. There's spoiled milk or contaminated milk that we could be drinking. Spiritual milk that is bad for us. And that's why I started off this message talking about what is the message of our culture. And we might say, you know, I'm not really into my culture's message. 
But the reality is, it is very, it's, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, getting, this is just coming to mind right now, getting hit by a porcupine, and you can't just be like, oh yeah, you know, I just brushed all those quills off. No, it's like in us. This is a message that in, we've been brought up with it, drinking it our whole lives. But now, Peter says, you need to long for this pure spiritual milk, not those spoiled, contaminated messages out there. And really, this is going from a human-centered to a God-centered message. And we cannot live a God-centered life alone. Uh, because we're born again for brotherly love. Uh, and even if that wasn't the command that we're supposed to love one another, um, still we can't make it to the promised land, As we, if you want to think about we've been liberated from slavery to sin, Satan, and death, on our way to the promised land. We aren't going to make it there without other people to help us and hold us up. And the message of expressive individualism is just kind of ingrained in us. Even if you've been in the church your whole life, I mean, you have the best chance of not having that be your primary message if you've been in the church your whole life, because uh, you've been hearing both all the time. But you think about the movies we watch, all the Disney movies you watch. I like Disney movies, for the record. So every Disney movie, you're getting it. Oh, look, yeah, that's bad that this that her this person's family is telling you you need to be this certain way or act this certain way. And look, she just wants to get out there and express herself. We believe that the people holding on to the traditions and keeping someone from expressing themselves, those are the bad guys. That's what our movies tell us. And it's good for this person to try and break out of that. That's the narrative that we have grown up with since we're kids all the way to adults, is that people need to be able to express themselves, to be free to do what they feel inside. Nobody else should tell them that they can't do that. And there's a certain part of that that's true. Um, the reality is that the gospel is better news than that story of like whatever you feel inside, you just need to get that out. I mean, there's lots of things that I feel inside that I shouldn't get out. I mean, what if you feel like, I just kind of want to murder people. Like, is that something we should feel inside? But then our morality is, you know, do, you know, you be you as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. That's kind of the condition put on it. You just be whoever you want and you know, do whatever you want to do. And that's the American dream. You just can't hurt anybody else while you do it. And it's like, is that what the Bible talks about? Is that the message the Bible gives us? That I define who I am from the inside out? And no external authorities should be able to tell me what's what? No, the Bible tells us uh, that, yes, you have an identity, but it's one you receive. It's not one you make yourself. That, okay, this is how I feel inside. Now I've got to go make that for myself. I've got to become that. No, God says, I made you in my image. That's who you are. You're meant to reflect me. And you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. And now that's something to receive, not for you to work for and get. You don't have to keep you know, trying to make yourself into it and hoping other people will see that you've done that and they'll affirm you. No, we make our we often say, well who I am is what I do or what I feel and what others think of me. And so if it's like I'm trying to this is what I'm trying to be and now I want I need everyone else to recognize that and approve of that and affirm it. And God says, No, it's just received. I give it to you in love. It's free. And this message of expressive individualism, it will kill you and it will kill the community of God. It will kill you because we're never meant to take on the responsibility of defining ourselves, of defining our own identities. And that it, if we are going to do that, it separates us from the love and influence of a community. Because we say, I don't need anyone else to have a relationship with God. It's just me and him. I just need me and my Bible. And Peter says, if you've got the word of God, you've been born into a community. That's the purpose that you're born into. It's not just you and your Bible, and you might throw in the Holy Spirit too, but it's you and the Father and Jesus in this community of other people. So it will kill you. It will kill our community 
because it puts us in a position to love ourselves rather than one another. And we will come to church asking, what's in it for me? How is this church helping fulfill my deep inner desires and longings of who I feel I need to be? Is this, you know, what's in it for me? Are they helping me? And we often make lots of decisions with our individual self at the center. We don't submit to the community or ask the community. And we only listen to the people who are saying what we want them to hear. I mean, this is one of the big problems today is that people talk about social media or news outlets, and it's like we just, we just listen to the stuff we want to hear, and Facebook serves up the stuff they know we want to hear. So we just kind of get into, I'm just listening to people that say what I want. We do what feels good to us, or what we think is best for us. We make ourselves the highest authority. We think me instead of we. And we ask, what's best for me instead of what's at best for us? What's best for this community? Because he says we need to love one another, which means we stop focusing on loving ourselves and focus on the concerns of others. And there's this book that um, a couple of us in the church just read. You know, I realize that the, the picture in here is way too small for anybody to actually see, but hopefully maybe you'll just be able to see it from a different distance. It's like there's this person juggling all these, like, things around them, you know, home and job and whatnot. Uh, they're just juggling all this stuff, their phone and, I don't know, it looks like a magic hat. Oh, it's, it's coffee. Uh, their calendar. And so often we go through life, I've got all these things I'm juggling, my work, my family, my, you know, whatever it is. And one of the things we're usually juggling is church. Is that, okay, I'm juggling the church in this, but this, I love this graphic because he argues, no, it should be more like this. It's you in the community of God with other people and more like a, um, a, the middle, uh, what's the middle thing on a wheel called? Hubs. Hub, there you go. So there's the hub and then the axles going out. Is that instead of church or commu- Christian community being one of those things that we're juggling, it's actually, no, I've, God has caused me to be born again into the family of God, into this community, and now with those people, I'm living all my life. It's kind of like the center thing that I'm uh, keeping me with God and that I'm revolving around. And so I kind of thought of this garden illustration that he talks about. You know, there's things that you can put in your soil of your life in this community that are going to kill it. What he says, he calls malice, deceit, hypocrisy. Well, really, that's what it grows. It's these impure messages, other messages that come from our culture. We put that in our soil, and what it's going to grow is malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. But he says, you need to put the right stuff in there. You need to put the fertilizer of God's word into this community, into your life, and that's going to grow love for one another. And so for us, we may ask ourselves, what are we going to let rule and guide our life as a community? We need to let the Word of God shape us rather than the world and what it says. And a key element to remaining different under pressure, uh, under pressure to fit in, is, the lo- is a loving community. I mean, he's talking to these people where people are saying, you should stop following this Jesus guy, giving them all this pressure, harassment, hostility. And how are they going to remain faithful to Jesus? How are you going to stay different? Remember, what brought you into this? You were born again by God's word. And let that word define uh, what you do and what you're about as a community. And that's what's going to help you withstand this pressure to remain different. Uh, and to be in a di- to remain different, we need to be in a different kind of community. One defined by a different message than what our culture has. Let's pray. Father God, we just hear what Peter talks about here, that we need to long for your word, 
for more of you, for more of what you have to say to us as a community. And letting that define and shape who we are uh, as a church. And it's in our name, Good News Church, that that ought to be the center of all things, uh, because that's how we put you at the center. So Lord, would you make us into a community uh, that is shaped and formed by your word, and that it's what we come back to together over and over again when we're discouraged, when we're uh, concerned, when we're fearful, when we're stressed. And would you help us to walk in that word together? Just in the name we pray. Amen.